Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 23. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Chapter 36 The only time Javin had ever felt such tension as the trip downriver was when facing a cavalry charge, but the duration of a cavalry charge was considerably less than three days. He tried to sleep when his turn came, but it was useless. There were hostile farthy on every side. The tension and weariness were even evident on Rusk's face. The Fury's audacity had granted them a bit of luck to get this far, it seemed, but all of them knew that the slightest misstep could bring it all crashing down around their ears. They would all die. Bella would die. War would explode again with the Fury reborn of vengeance. They had put away their black clothing and assumed their carefully planned guises of Duthan and Jarl's merchants and their bodyguards. In addition to the disguises the Furies had brought with them, the captured pirate ship had granted them a trove of clothing from various parts. Apparently, the pirates had used such ruses themselves. Sasha's dyes and makeup darkened some of their hair and skin so that they were not immediately recognizable as Cuscans, as long as they were not challenged too closely. Javin could be taken for a Gafrini or a Kadathian, but he did not speak any Free City's tongues. The best plan was to blend into plain sight. Throughout the journey, Rusk drilled it into the three trainees' minds. Behave as if you have no reason to expect a problem. Those who act suspiciously are quickly recognized as such. Be ever wary, but appear at ease. They spent hours during the river journey practicing their farthy language among themselves. Their limited vocabulary expanded quickly with constant practice and the heightened pressure. When they reached the wider stretches of river, they encountered other river craft carrying passengers and goods, plying the waters from lowland tributaries. Other travelers kept their distance. Large yak-drawn wagons, laden with goods and empty riverboats, trundled upstream into the mountains. According to the map, Alcott lay near the convergence of several river systems, even one that flowed out of the arid red waste during the summer rainy season. To the north, the land rose toward another mountain range, with a single towering peak raising its snow-capped head into wisps of cloud. On the riverbanks, the city of Alcott slowly formed out of ever-thickening concentrations of settlements, until the sprawling octopus of the city surrounded them. A difficult predicament was their lack of knowledge about the city itself, its layout, its construction, its quarters and districts. Wishing to lay low until they could learn more, the Furies turned their boats down a series of small canals into the crafters' quarters, slums, merchant districts, and warehouses. 
As they went, they noted inns, prominent residences, temples, marketplaces, anything that could serve as a landmark. Ost sketched it all out with remarkable accuracy. After a day of quiet, unobtrusive reconnoitering, they had developed a general picture of the city and its environs. In so doing, they identified the high temple of the Absatha with its great tower and silver moon disk. They had floated past it once, and Javin could hardly take his eyes off the place. Bella was inside. He sensed it somehow. They holed up for the night in a back street inn on the edge of a slum. A handful of Duthan gold ducats convinced a skeptical innkeeper of their goodwill and their need for no questions asked. The place was shabby, unkempt, and smelled like roaches, mold, and spine-rat dung. But the greed that flashed in the innkeeper's eyes at the sight of the gold told them that this would provide the perfect place for them to stay out of sight. He had likely never had so many patrons at once. The innkeeper reminded Javin of the old farmer, wiry and thin, gray beard bristling around a toothless mouth. The inn had eight cramped, filthy rooms on the second floor. They debated the wisdom of all of them staying in one place. Twenty-odd foreigners, all staying together, could raise unwanted interest. News of what had happened at Barmia Temple would have reached Alcott by now, and the tale would likely be bloated with rumor. The longer they remained in one place, the more likely they would be compromised. Nevertheless, Rusk felt it was too dangerous for them to separate. They slept three to a room, with Sasha, the wealthy Goffrini noblewoman, maintaining her own room. The beds were little more than lice-infested straw pallets, but the rooms kept them out of sight. The three trainees shared a room, and Javin did his best to ignore Maggot. Maggot's mood was sullen, almost hostile, and he had barely spoken in days. Even on the river he had kept to himself. He lay on one of the straw pallets, turned his face toward the wall, and went to sleep. Javin was weary, but not sleepy. His insides vibrated like a lute string. He was in Fartha. Two months ago, he would never have dreamed it possible. Perhaps curiosity shook his belly, or perhaps it was simply the anticipation of death and violence. Everything he had seen today seemed so... every day, so normal. These people were simply going about their lives, yet everything possessed an air of magic. The endless war had painted him a picture of the Farthy, had given all his countrymen such a picture, that was nothing like what he had seen today. Conversation and laughter, children playing in alleys and streets, women moving sometimes in flocks, sometimes with their children in tow, but never alone. Rusk had ordered them to stay out of sight, but Javin's curiosity got the better of him. He went to the narrow window and opened the shutter to admit the warm, moist evening air. A few people walked the street below. The air was thick with competing smells, sizzling meat, steaming rice, strange spices, incense, garbage left in the street in pungent piles, livestock dung. He thought about nights in Norgard, and it all felt much the same, but also subtly different. As if the city had its own character that manifested in its smells, like the differences between Norgard and Yarburg. Alcott was indeed a living city with its exotic character and mystery. Could it be called a lure? Two middle-aged men passed along the narrow street, conversing, one clumping along on a wooden leg, the other with his left sleeve pinned to his shoulder, empty. Farther down the street, 
Bent old men made their way on canes. A furtive street urchin, so filthy Javin could not distinguish if it was a boy or a girl, tried not to be noticed. Two thin middle-aged women walked together, chatting in low tones through their veils. Across the way, meager lights burned through a few stuccoed windows. Snippets of conversation borne on the still air. The sky deepened to purple over the black, blockish silhouettes of the Alcott skyline, chasing away the last vestiges of orange and gold in the west. The moon hung high in the sky, and he started when he saw the face of the moon mother. It had turned a deep red, darkened with an unfamiliar shadow. A tingle went down Javin's spine and joined the swirl in his gut. With a sense of awe, Javin felt the ancient legends come to life in his mind and clash with the science of the spheres pioneered by Dame Vamina Yarwood. The moon circled the earth. The earth circled the sun. Until her earth-shattering discoveries, in the minds of men, both gods had circled their creation, keeping watch against the tides of moon devils coming out of the black abysses of the void. Scriptures said that on such nights as this, the moon devils caught Mother Inanan, as they occasionally did, and devoured her, so she could be reborn as a maiden. But nowadays, scholars said it was simply the shadow of the earth that devoured her countenance. To defend their ancient beliefs from this new tide of knowledge, the Farthy priest kings had waged war. Since Dame Yarwood's discoveries, other scholars had verified her assertions and built upon them. They had constructed powerful spyglasses, said to be able to see the surface of the moon itself, and were even said to have discovered that the heavenly sparkle that the Farthy believed was their prophet Sadim ascended into heaven was actually another reddish sphere similar to the moon, only incomprehensibly far away across the black abyss. How could the ancient Farthy traditions stand against this knowledge? How could their two lands not go to war again? Conversation in the common room below spilled out through the square of light from the open door into the street. As the night grew deeper, the patrons filed out, and Javin watched them go. All of them were old men. All of them. Something niggled at the back of his brain, some realization he could not quite grasp. Footsteps in the hallway interrupted his thoughts, and Tonin entered. Tonin sighed, his face weary, and rubbed his eyes. I have never heard so much farthy spoken in my life. My mind feels like it just had two minutes of heaven. Some of these people speak in such a thick dialect I have no idea what they're saying. What did you learn? The tower with the silver disc is indeed the high temple of the Absatha, for one thing. Javin watched the mixture of emotions play through Tonin's face. What must it be like for him to come here, after what the Absathans did to his mother? Did you talk to anyone? Were they friendly? They were personable enough. I grew tired of hearing old men complain about their aches and tribulations, though. Were they suspicious of you? Not that I could tell. Apparently, Free City's merchants are more and more common in these parts since the ceasefire. Alcott is the first point of contact between the Free Cities and the rest of Fartha. Maggot turned his head and glared at them. Will you two clamp your festering gobs? I'm fucking tired, and so should you be. Tonin and Javin glared at him. Tonin turned to Javin. He's right about you, at least. You haven't slept in days. You look like a box arse. Javin shrugged. A brief knock at the door turned them to look, and Carl opened the door and peeked inside. 
Javin, you are first watch. There's a chair set up at the top of the stairs. Remember, we are protecting our noblewoman. No one comes up. Javin stood at attention. Yes, sir. Javin gave Maggot one last look of disgust before following Carl out into the narrow hallway. Wake Horace in an hour, Carl said. Javin nodded, and Carl disappeared into his room. With a deep breath, he settled onto his place on the stool at the top of the stairs. The only light shone from the old bronze oil lamp beside him. Snores already rumbled through the thin wooden doors up and down the hall. This was the first real night's sleep any of them had seen since they left the ship, and it was indeed a grateful rest. After days without sleep, Javin's weariness swept over him like a wave, but he would not sleep. Time passed, and the night deepened. From somewhere below, the voice of the innkeeper rose in a sing-song chant. He was able to pick out a smattering of words. It sounded much like a prayer to the Moon Mother, to give her the strength to be reborn. The prayer lasted most of Javin's watch. Soon after the innkeeper's voice stopped, a small figure hurried past the bottom of the stairs, dressed in a loose white nightdress. As the child scampered by, Javin caught a glimpse of two enormous brown eyes peeking up at him. Then a small head poked back around the corner of the stairway, those eyes almost glowing in the lamplight like twin wells of curiosity. A little girl, perhaps seven years old. The girl murmured with surprise and awe as she looked at Javin. Yabhanshi! Javin recognized the word instantly. Foreigner. Then the child said, Habshitha! Javin could not help smiling. The child had said, First time! He replied in Farthi, Hello, little one. The girl giggled and disappeared, as he sat on his stool for the rest of his watch. Her face would not leave his mind. For him, too, it had been a first time. Chapter 37 The master called upon Adon for another dangerous task only the day after his arrival. Part of an intricately concocted scheme envisioned long before Adon and his companions received their orders to kidnap Bella Wollstone. Of course, Adon did not question the master's plan or judgment. The master knew the mind of the great prophet. But, after being away from his homeland for so long, his task felt disloyal. Eventually, he had seen the beauty of it, given a chance to think it over. He also understood why he was the perfect man for the job. The master was a genius. How could their cause not be successful with such a man as their leader? In the dawning light of early morning, Adon watched his quarry. His blood thrummed in his veins like the strings of a thaz. So little had changed in Alcott since he was sent away to do the work of the great prophet. The streets, the smells, the feel of the breeze on his skin, all were so familiar it was as if he had never left. His comrades brought the yak-drawn wagon trundling to a stop in the alley behind Mumashat's shrine, the holiest site in the city of Alcott, where once upon ancient times Sadim and his disciples had been lost in the desert, dying of thirst, and he had called to the gods and struck the ground with his staff, and the earth shook and heaved and a fresh spring bubbled up. 
In those days, the region was nothing but empty desert on the fringes of the Red Waste. But Sadim had called forth the water, and the earth had answered his call, and rivers flowed across the parched ground, and the land became lush and fertile as it was now, and the city of Alcott had sprung up around it. The site of that original spring was the sacred site within this shrine, built by one of Sadim's followers. Sadim, the great prophet himself, had ordered it named after the man who built the shrine. The shrine was a favorite place for many inhabitants of Alcott, and its waters were said to possess healing properties. Many of the aged inhabitants of the city professed that their longevity owed to drinking every day from the waters of Mumashoth's shrine. For one hour every day, the shrine was closed so that it could receive a special visitor. Zamish Amphathad Twelfth, the firstborn son of the most holy priest king of Alcott, Zameth Omphathad, the seventeenth, came to the shrine daily for his morning prayers and sacred ablutions. Zamish was said to be a pious man, a worthy successor to his father's reign. In Alcott, he was the public face of the priest kings, where his father was too absorbed in studying the holy Zaraf and attending to the affairs of state to have much time for presenting himself to the faithful. Zamish was the charismatic spokesman, the kind holy man, one of a promising next generation of priest kings poised to lead the cities of Fartha. The master had chosen his target well. Zamish, a tall, thin man of perhaps thirty years, knelt before the stone-walled pool, which was perhaps twenty paces across amidst the lush foliage of the shrine garden. The surface of the pond rippled with the flow of water from below and spilled over the rocks, flowing away and seeping into the earth. White mineral crusted the stone ring, and the air around the pool had a strange smell, but the faithful believed it was the scent of the holiness of the water, which could not be found anywhere else. A six-foot stone wall, as ancient as the city of Alcott itself, surrounded the shrine, and the shrine garden grew thick with lush vegetation, breathtaking blossoms and meticulously trimmed hedges, carefully shaped trees with branches that might have been sculpted by the hands of the gods themselves. Zamish Amphithad's hair was shaven in the manner of all the most holy men, and his short beard was woven with glittering jewels. He knelt solemnly before the pond and washed himself with a cloth dipped from a wooden bucket that contained the waters of the shrine. Adon waited out of sight behind the heavy bushes, just able to see his quarry. His two comrades waited for him to give the signal. In front of the shrine, resting near the gate, was Zamish's beautiful gilded palanquin with its silken cushions and drapes. The rulers of Adon's beloved land allowed themselves too much luxury. They had grown soft and weak, and this weakness had allowed the idea of peaceful coexistence with Cuska to take root. His countrymen had all become apostates. But it was not too late to put them back on the righteous path before the end, Eight steadfast bodyguards, armed with swords and pistols, guarded the palanquin and the shrine gate. Adon could see one of them, and the bodyguards' spired helm and polished breastplate glinted in the morning sun. The bodyguards moved with the same cocksure proficiency as the blue dragons. Fortunately for Adon's task, the holy Zamish required privacy, and the guards could not see their charge. Adon had chosen his position carefully amidst the foliage. He could see them all. 
He whistled like a morning lark, and his call was answered from two separate directions. His comrades, he did not even know their names, moved from their hiding places and converged on the unsuspecting man. Adon moved toward the shrine gate as silently as a shadow. He wore clothes like those of a simple peasant, but the colors were carefully chosen to be difficult to spot in shadow-dappled foliage. He took a position a few paces behind one of the guards and waited. Timing was critical. His ears surged with the beat of his heart as he waited. His comrades were approaching their quarry, he knew without seeing. He took off the cloth that concealed his light-colored hair, a curse from his infidel mother that had been the bane of his life, made him an outcast in farthy society, until the brotherhood had embraced him, and the master had seen how deep his faith truly was. This hair, along with his lighter skin, blockish build, and a childhood speaking cuskish with his mother, had allowed him to pass as a cuskin for so many years. He pulled two pistols from their hidden holsters under his baggy clothing. They were his blue dragon pistols, specially made for House Woolstone and emblazoned with the Woolstone crest. Fine weapons, far superior to anything a farthy gunsmith could produce. The Grand General had presented them to him, personally, on the day of his formal acceptance into the Blue Dragons. The sound of a morning lark again quavered from the direction of the shrine pool, which meant that his comrades had knocked their quarry unconscious. Even now they would be carrying him to the back wall of the shrine yard, where they would hoist him over and spirit him away in the back of their wagon. He had only to await one more signal that said they had taken Zamish over the wall. Adon's heart beat faster, louder. Moments stretched into eternities. What was taking so long? Were there witnesses in the alley? Then it came, the distant shrill of the morning lark from the rear wall. By now, Zamish had been bound and gagged, rolled up tightly in a heavy rug, stacked among other rugs in the back of the wagon and covered with a canvas. A ruse that worked against the infidels would work just as well on his own people. Adon crept up behind the nearest bodyguard, cocked his pistols, and fired one into the back of the nearest bodyguard's head. Smoking gobbets of brain and blood exploded from the bodyguard's face amidst a cloud of blue smoke, spattering the other bodyguard. As well trained as the bodyguard was, he was still dumbstruck at the sudden violence, frozen, as his compatriot collapsed, twitching at his feet. Adon shouted in Cuskish, "'Die, you farthy jackals! Blood for blood! Blood for the Grand General!' He leveled his other pistol at the frozen bodyguard's face and discharged his weapon. The second guard's face collapsed into an ensanguined smear under the burst of blue smoke and orange flame, and the polished helmet tumbled from the ruins and fell with a clang just ahead of the rest of him. A shout of alarm erupted among the six remaining guards, Three of them drew their swords, the other three pulled their pistols and prepared to fire, but the unwieldy wheel-lock firing mechanisms took more effort and time to cock than the blue dragon flintlocks. By the time the guards had trained their pistols, Adon had long since darted behind cover. The bodyguards charged him with swords at the ready. He threw down one of the pistols, holstered the other, and drew his sword. He met the first bodyguard coming through the entrance and delivered a mortal blow to the side of the head. The body fell and two more leaped through the entrance, swinging their blades. If Adon's training had not been superior, in that instant they would have slashed him to pieces, but he blocked one blow and allowed the other to slide past him. They drove him back into the foliage, their faces grim with concentration. "'Death is coming, you jackals!' Adon snarled in Cuskin. "'Alcott will burn! Alzab will burn! 
Your prophets can go fuck their mothers. He remembered well the many epithets he had heard his fellow blue dragons and other Cuscans apply to their ancient adversaries. Highly trained veteran soldiers like these might have seen battle on the front lines and might have learned a smattering of Cuskish. Two more bodyguards moved in behind the swordsmen and leveled their pistols. Time to flee. Adon had the skill to fence with these men all day long, but even he could not outfence a pistol ball. He lunged back through the foliage, ducking as two reports cracked behind him. Balls whizzed and snapped through the foliage. Swordsmen flung themselves after him. The last pistolier jumped through the entrance, aimed, and fired. His aim was true. Adon grunted as what felt like a sledgehammer slammed into his left shoulder blade. He stumbled and dropped his Cuscan broadsword, but he righted himself quickly. The swordsmen were hot on his heels, snarling with burgeoning battle rage. But even wounded, he was too nimble for them to catch him. He leaped half up the trunk of a tree near the wall, caught a bow in his right hand, and swung himself over the wall, opposite the direction that his comrades had gone with their captive. The collade was waiting where he left it. The buck snorted and bared his teeth at the scent of blood soaking Adon's back. His strength was failing, but he still had enough to vault himself into the saddle, snatch the reins, and kick the buck into an instantaneous leaping gallop. He bent low over the buck's neck as it leaped into the front street, where he gave the bodyguards just enough time to spot him before he sent the animal hurtling down the street away from them. The denizens of Alcott jumped out of the way of the snorting, galloping Kalad, and he whipped the beast to even greater speed. The bodyguards were on foot. They would never catch him. It had been foolish of them to eschew mounted bodyguards. His countrymen had grown weak and complacent. Only when he left that district of the city and passed into the crafter's quarter did he rein in his mount and replace his headscarf. In the crafter's quarter, the safe house awaited him, and he rode the collard through the open gate into the courtyard of a wealthy money-changer, which was actually a fake residence, where the Brotherhood kept a supply of weapons and supplies. Two men slammed the gates behind him. The animal would join a stable of six others that looked just like it, Witnesses would shake their heads and go about their business, and Adon would have his wound tended by brethren overseeing the money-changer's house. He would dye his hair black and eventually make his way back to the high temple under cover of darkness, his mission accomplished. When the magistrates of Alcott and the forces of the most holy Zameth, Om Fathad, examined Mumashath's shrine, they would find nothing except a bit of carefully placed blood at the shrine pool and two Cuscan weapons. All that remained was to await the uproar that would erupt when the Most Holy Priest King discovered that Cuscans had kidnapped or killed his firstborn son and heir. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.